When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Napoleon Bonaparte. Emperor, reformer, general, politician, diplomat, husband, the man who is credited with rewriting the laws of France, leading the nation to heights not seen at any point in its proud history. But as with all humans in history, where there is light, so there is also darkness. The architect of his own downfall, misogynist, racist, dictator, tyrant. Napoleon's legacy and his suitability as a hero has been debated for more than 200 years and will be for 200 more. And as we welcome in 2024 and consider our New Year's resolutions, understanding who we value, their complexities, and what attributes we prize could not be more apt. Tonight, Napoleon Bonaparte is under the spotlight as two of the world's most respected Napoleonic historians unpick his life and legacy in forensic detail. We debate the Machiavellian undertones of the man's actions, argue on the inevitability of the resurgence of misogyny that he presided over, and question his suitability as a hero for the modern age in a warts-and-all deep dive into one of history's most complex and endlessly fascinating leaders. This is Napoleon, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Up next, on the Napoleonic Wars pod. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the New Year's special of the Napoleonic Wars pod. And we believe in partying like it's 1799 on this show. Um, as you will have heard from the introduction, we are going to look at Napoleon, the good, the bad and the ugly. But I've got two people in the room who aren't necessarily known for heaping praise on Bonaparte. So this could be an interesting discussion although both of them are very respected some of the most respected napoleonic scholars 
anywhere in the world. So they will be balanced, if nothing else. Um, and I think at least one of them might be inclined to play devil's advocate for me in order to dig me out of this bad organisational hole that I have created for myself. I am joined by Alexander Mikabaridze, quite frankly, the Don of Napoleonic history. Yes, he's wincing and burying his head in his hands because uh, he doesn't like my effusive praise that I heap on him every time, but it's justified, so I make no apology for it. If you're not familiar already, Alex is Professor of History at Louisiana State University, Shreveport. He is also the Ruth Herring Noel Endowed Chair for the James Smith Knoll Collection, and he is the author, amongst many, many highly regarded books, of The Napoleonic Wars, A Global History, which I believe, in part thanks to good advertising from Ridley, has now become an Amazon number one bestseller, and it's about done time. Alex, great to see you. Happy New Year, even though we're actually recording this before the Christmas season, but we'll ignore the magic of podcasting. How are you doing? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And once again, uh, every time you mention that word, Don, uh, I, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I'm too but young yes. to be Don. <laughs> okay, the age thing I can take, but that's what makes it all the more impressive that you have risen right. yeah, to that status. You know my status. gray hair. That's right. I look youngish, right? Boyish. <laughs> you look younger than me, quite frankly, but <laughs> perhaps yeah. that says too much about my skincare. Yeah, that's right. That's your, that's your beard thing. That's why. <laughs> No, thank you. Uh, it, it's a, always an honor and privilege um, to be at this on this podcast. You know how greatly I respect you as, as a scholar, but more importantly, as the individual who uh, does his best to popularize what we do, right? Reach out to to the people uh, to to make sure that the the, the books or the uh, ideas and topics of research don't simply stay in the ivory tower, but uh, are discussed, are accessible, and and that is a very important, you know, I would say, crucial part of of historians' job. Well, it's very kind of you, but I always say I do the easy bit of the job because I just find people who can talk for an hour and fire a couple of questions in their direction. So I I'm I'm the one who has it easy, quite frankly, and I'm the one who makes my guests have headaches at the end of these sessions. Um, also joining us, uh, we talked about Don's, frankly, one of the Europe's most respected um, scholars, not just in the field of Napoleonic history, but also in the field of security studies, is Professor Beatrice de Graaf from Utrecht University. Beatrice um, is the author of what I believe was a multi-award winning um, book on fighting terror after Napoleon, um, won the Darnberg Prize, which is probably the most esteemed of the, the European history prizes, which says a great deal about Beatrice's standing within the Napoleonic, um, well, not, in fact, not just the Napoleonic community, but actually within the, the history community writ large. Beatrice, lovely to see you. Happy New Year, even though we're actually heading to Christmas. Uh, how are you doing? Thank you so much, Nick. Yeah, almost wrapping up for Christmas. Um, we had a screening of the Napoleon film this week for our students, so I was able to watch the second time, and I'm still a bit reading from that second time about how I feel about it right now. You inflicted it upon yourself twice? That's, yes. That's well, a unique level of punishment that um, I think, frankly, Légion d'honneur um, is merited when it comes to to putting yourself through that twice. Um, Thank you and, so much. Yeah. And you're, you're segueing very nicely for me into the, the first thing that I wanted to talk about with both of you, which is 
reactions to the film. And yes, people, we have ranted at great length on this. So I'm not going to sort of make this an effusive rant, but I imagine you have opinions and very pertinent opinions on this movie. I am tempted to sort of lead you and ask, does it have any redeeming features? Um, but I I shouldn't be such a, an unkind um, and, and leading um, host. So let me get your reactions to the film and perhaps also your students' reactions to the film, which is also very interesting. Um, my students at Portsmouth didn't go and see it, <laughs> which um, is either a, an indication of their lack of interest in the Napoleonic era. Granted, it is a... a broad spectrum history course as opposed to a specifically 19th century Napoleonic history course so perhaps they just haven't been bitten with the Napoleonic bug yet but it didn't seem to even feature on their radars which I found curious and certainly not what I was expecting I was expecting this film to tap into something amongst the next generation but um, Beatrice let's start with you because you had this big screening for your students just the other day um, and and some of your students' reactions were interesting, weren't they? And we should say that when it comes to the, the Ridley Scott film, much though you are both incredibly polite uh, people, the profanity filter ceases to exist on this podcast. So so you can be frank about your views, should you wish to be. Um, first, the response of my students, and then I'll bring in something more profane. Um, the response of my students was very interesting. It was uh, overall, they were born and bred and raised thoroughly here in the Netherlands. So they were all negative about it. So uh, here you go. That was the good reaction that I hoped for. But the interesting part was that especially the uh, female students, they were very negative and they were very shocked even, uh, some of them. Uh, not so much about the way Napoleon was portrayed, but uh, about the way he behaved towards women. And they asked me, was Napoleon really so beastly towards women? Well, can't entirely know for sure whether he behaved so insensitive to Josephine all the way along. But we know from some of his letters that you also brought out, Zach, that uh, at sometimes you, you said that earlier on in the conversation, Napoleon could be very needy, very flattering and very caring or seemingly caring towards Josephine with other instances he was abusive he was nasty he was mean he was vile to her he used he used horrible names he called her monster and slut and worse and in the film he behaved very badly towards her. he slapped her in the face and then that's more to the profound uh, prof sorry profane part um for some reason I admitted my oldest daughter to sit in and watch the movie uh, as well. She's 16 years old, just turned 16, I have to say. And she was completely shocked by the, yeah, let's put it bluntly, the, 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 the animal-like sex scenes that Ridley Scott invented for Napoleon and Joseph. I do think that my daughter was more shocked that her mother was sitting next to her than that she was, was watching that on screen at, and, and watching that on screen at the same time. I mean, children these days, they have seen their stuff, but it was just, it was horrible scenes. And I really can't understand why Ridley Scott found it necessary to put that in the movie. So I'm, it's double. So on the one hand, I feel bad about Ridley Scott doing this. And on the other hand, and that's perhaps where the film is a bit redeeming. Um, I do think that Napoleon was a misogynistic prick towards women and that he wasn't able to treat Josephine properly and that he couldn't behave towards women. 
and uh, he, he didn't take them seriously. We, I don't know if, if I have to explain this now or we can do it later. If, if we're talking about Napoleonic code and reforms, they were very much mythogenistic in, in, in their makeup. And you can see that in the movie. And my female students, they um, saw from Napoleon and that made me happy. Okay, so if you hadn't worked it out already from that introduction, um, Beatrice will not be making the case in favour of Napoleon over the course of this episode. Quite whether or not Alex does is is another thing entirely, uh, but we will get there in due course. Yes, I mean, perhaps the misogyny is one of the few things that I felt the film dabbled with in a a way that I didn't always like i i strongly disliked the um the the slap um i i couldn't decide whether or not i felt that that was appropriate and necessary and i struggled with the context because um that that divorce scene in reality certainly goes down in history as something that's perhaps more sensitive um um, so I I struggled with that scene, um, and I'm still not sure quite where I stand on the whole thing. But yes, the misogyny came through, um, and it's interesting that what we're talking about now isn't sort of even the nitpicky stuff. Um, it's sort of overall reactions, and I think this is I'm very bored of people turning around in the comments sections and going, "Oh, you historians, you don't realise that films aren't meant to be historically accurate." Um, please, my friends. I've been saying that since the first trailer dropped, and we are fairly good at understanding the difference between actual history and entertainment, us historians, um, because we do deal in certainly one of them and sometimes both of them. Uh, so it's not really even the historical inaccuracy that's the problem. It's the feel. It, it's how you feel at the end of it. And, and I know I've said this multiple times, but I, I didn't walk out of that cinema... Liking, loving, hating, loathing, feeling anything. I had no investment in the Napoleonic story. And I think that is part of the problem. Um, but then the fact that certainly my students weren't going to see it anyway did make me scratch my head in terms of what went wrong with the marketing. Because beforehand, it, I felt the marketing was quite good, apart from Ridley Scott deciding that he needed to go and take a flamethrower to what he thinks the historical profession is uh but that people did make the point that was a kind of inspired ploy in itself because it made us get very angry and sort of start taking him apart for it um i i do wonder what sort of went wrong in the delivery that certainly my students weren't going um and some of them are pretty historically engaged so I found that curious. Alex, what was your experience out in the States? Was there a lot of hype and, and how did your students react? Um, well, um, I wouldn't say it's hype. Um, there was some interest. Um, I certainly contributed to the hype in, in that I organized mass screening. Um, uh, we have a wonderful film center in, 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 in my town and I made a arrangement with the film center to bring the film to the to Shreveport and more crucially um to offer the screening of it for free to all our students uh, so we we had close to 200 students attending it uh, and then plus we had public and it, it was a, a sold out um evening uh, and you know in order to kind of put it in the proper context i, I gave a 
preliminary remarks, and then we had a long, almost an hour-long discussion after the movie, and I can say that um, there was not a single uh, comment made in, in, in support of the film. So even the people who uh, care not for historical accuracies, and I was first to admit, right, I'm, I'm not going to film to movies to, to find a dissertation uh, on, on the topic. Right, I'm, I'm there for entertainment. Um, and I don't think the movie works on entertainment level, even before we get into historical setting. And then I think the, uh, well, at least at the, at the uh, Q&A session, there was not a single um, person who expressed a, uh, uh, an opinion that this movie was a good entertainment. It, it wasn't awkward. And as, as Beatrice pointed out, the sex scenes seem gratuitous, unnecessary. There's a, there are so many um, other ways you can convey the complexity of the relationship between Napoleon and Josephine without um, without the the uh, re resort to a cliche uh, of, of, I don't know, uh, of Napoleon being a one-minute man, right? Um, at least when it comes to sex. Um, so I don't know. Um, it, it, it didn't work for me, and it, 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 I don't think it worked for the people who came to the audience, uh, to the audience who came to the, to the screening. Um, and of course, that's before we get to the nitty-gritty of, of, of the problems with history. So I, I, overall, I think it's a weird film. I don't know what the script, screen, uh, the script writer was thinking or what, what exactly he read, Right, David Scarpa, uh, what exactly he consulted to produce this uh, book, uh, oh, this film, the script, and I wrote a, a, long, um, a lengthy review of it for a French uh, periodical, and in there I said uh, that the script really looks and feels like it was uh, uh, taken from, uh, you know, Napoleon for Dummies or um, kind of Wikipedia page, or actually I, I referred to to a series of cliff notes, right? Uh, it's a short kind of concise thing. I mean, broad framework is there. Yes, Australis happened, Waterloo happened, but <laughs> there's no substance behind that. Apparently, Leipzig um, didn't happen, though, nor did the Italian <laughs> campaign. Well, British were not there, so I don't know. Well, maybe, exactly. it's a, maybe it's a Ridley thing. But then Spain didn't happen either, so no, well, and British were there. <laughs> Yeah, it was very odd. I had a very similar reaction to to you immediately after coming back, coming out of the cinema. I, I did a, a quick kind of initial take and mine was, it's as though somebody had watched a YouTube short of Napoleon's life, scribbled down some some big events, because hey, you'd mentioned Borodino, I mean, you'd mentioned Waterloo and Austerlitz, because why not? Um, and then just, just ran with a script off the back of that. It, it did seem... It's... <laughs> See, it's, it's difficult because we we all know that it, it had that challenge of of almost being too ambitious, right? You you needed two, three, four films to properly tell this story. You couldn't do it, I don't think, in two and a half hours. And I don't think four and a half hours will be enough either. But it just didn't seem to hang together as a film. But apologies, I, I cut you off um, mid-flow. No, I, I think I think the the concept conceptually. Neither this film or any film that tries to cram a turbulent life like this, uh, a life, a long life, uh, um, and and really a, a rich life, into one film or even a a short series like the one that uh, I guess Steven Spielberg is planning to to make, I don't think they will work because there's too too many things that 
that need to be accounted for. What what would have been a better uh, better film, both conceptually, visually, would have been to focus on one particular moment yeah. in history, one particular side, and then just delve into this and show Napoleon for who he really, right, quotation mark, really was. A complex figure who has some good things and as many bad things, right, to his character. I think that's what I would have done and that I hope that that's what will happen in the future. Yeah, so, and, and, and there was one scene that, that did linger that and also with, in watching it for the second time, the movie, it, it is a good scene from a film perspective, a cinemographic perspective. And the students also brought that up as something that they felt very ripped or, or also shocked, touched by. And that's the scene that all these soldiers in Austerlitz, they're sinking through the ice and they're dying with these red, red things in the water and uh, that the heavy fighting. But that is, on the one hand, a very dreamy-like scene, on the, other, on the other hand, a horrible scene, but it didn't happen at all. I looked it up in various encyclopedias. There were a couple of fish ponds, but probably there's a good reason that uh, risk that perhaps only three or four or five soldiers really fell through the eyes and died there. That's the cinematographic, uh, the cinematographic, I'm sorry, I'm a bit tired, uh, cinematographic touch to it. It's a scene from, you know, you, you all know that, but but to stress the point, it's the film Alexander Nevsky from Sergei Eisenstein from 1938. It's the battle on the ice, uh, uh, from the Middle, Age, Middle Ages. So it's, in a sense, interesting that he cites this filmographically, but it hasn't have to do anything at all will happen at Austerlitz. And if that's what the students will take from it, it's even more ridiculous. Yeah, I, I mean, this... I completely agree. Um, I think um, cinematographically, as you said, it looks wonderful, especially the the, the last scene of it with, with the Austrian, um, I guess, the standard bearer kind of trying to make yes. it out and falls, right? Kind of the fall of the empire, I think. Yeah. To me, the cinematographically also works the scene uh, of Napoleon bombarding the pyramids. Yes, it didn't happen, but it, it has certain allegory to it. So I, I would have gone uh, with it um, if it was just snapshots. I think all of that would have worked well if this was just Napoleon on St. Helena Island reminiscing and kind of being the snapshots of it. That This is how he kind of envisions it. It doesn't work <laughs> if it's especially how silly it takes what about a third of the film is <laughs> that scene. <laughs> um, so I, I agree with you, Beatrice. So we acknowledge that it has its problems. Um, in terms of its misconceptions, there's part of me that thinks that perhaps there won't be the challenge facing historians in the wake of it that um, perhaps we might have expected because there are so many points that seem so farcical actually the idea of the representation and any misconceptions embedded within that misrepresentation probably aren't going to embed themselves in the popular memory in the way that we might have expected unlike for example um let's let's use one of the the very original examples uh victor hugo's les miserables where people frequently quote from that thinking that they're quoting from history and in fact are getting it completely wrong um, but we should nonetheless, because the focus is Napoleon, the good, the bad and the ugly, we should take the time to think about what those common 
misconceptions and perceptions of Napoleon are. And foremost amongst them, for me, is the idea that Napoleon is a singularity. He's either all bad or he's all good. Um, and you can sit anywhere on that spectrum. But I think to characterise and caricature him as the Corsican ogre, or to deify him and put him on a pedestal as the 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 new Jesus of of his era, um, which is something that um, oh lord, scholar out in Australia, um, Philip Dwyer has commented on that. You know, he he sort of, I'm not entirely convinced by the um, analogy, but he has sort of drawn that comparison between the way in which um, Napoleon has a, an almost sort of cult like deified image and following compared to Jesus. Um, neither of those endpoints is is accurate and isn't helpful either because it polarizes the debate on somebody who is far more complex um, than that. So that's my sort of leading bugbear, I guess. Um, it's well known that I'm not a fan of the guy, but I, I equally think, you know, he has his his positive points, which we'll touch on over the course of this. Um, Alex, let me bring you in first. What would you say, particularly within your experience dealing with um, not only students, but also the wider community? Um, and of course, you having a, a US perspective um, on this. There is a, a feeling that I get from what I see online that perhaps the the American um, audiences are, are perhaps a little bit more receptive to Napoleon's story than um, certain European audiences. What's your read on sort of perceptions and misconceptions? I think, uh, in, you know, at least in my you know, discussions, um, and, and more crucially in kind of living through the past few years in, in the United States, uh, I'm not necessarily surprised by that singularity kind of thing uh, about Napoleon, because the United States has a problem, political problem, uh, for the past, you know, in the past, what, two political cycles, right? Um, it has poli uh, politicians who are clearly inept. It has a politician who is clearly has lied, engaged in behavior that borders, if not, tre you know, if not actually constitutes treasonous. And yet, that politician is, is a, a viable candidate in the upcoming presidential elections, it has, you know, the person has a profoundly strong base that refuses to accept no matter what. So I think Napoleon, who is immensely more talented and capable guy than our former president Trump, Napoleon, I'm not surprised that Napoleon has that strong support base too, still 200 years later. Um, there is certain, certain kind of level of delusion that people engage. It, it might be a deceptive rationalization, trying to kind of explain the decisions they've made. It It is maybe the romanticism of it. Um, uh, to a degree, it is respect for that strong man image and desire for that kind of strong man leadership, which in modern age is, is rather puzzling to me. Um, and... and to, to a degree, it is uh, uh, about what about is, right? When, whenever you kind of point out the, the problems that Napoleon um, creates or propagates, you oftentimes are told that, hey, 
you know, the people around him, others weren't, you know, equally bad. And and I think that's the challenge that I, as a, as, a, as an individual engaged in 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 the you know, kind of university educational system, um, I have to navigate in tor- in terms of explaining not just the complexity of history that took place 200, 250 years ago, but rather its continued relevance to our modern age, where we are clearly still fascinated with the great man, quotation marks, right? And um, it, it still poses a political issue, a, a profound political issue to, to a democratic process that we've taken for granted for so long. To what extent is that a long legacy of the historiography that in the the very early, the, the much earlier writings of history that were going out um, in the sort of late 18th, early 19th century, um, there was this very narrative theme. Um, it was predominantly great men of history. Is Are we dealing there with a, a long legacy of that, Beatrice? Yes, I I love listening to you, Alex. How you who you how you connect the past with the present of today's craving or desire for great men, and you now rightfully hint, Zach, about a pattern where we have done so, peoples have done so before democracy even started. This longing for great men. I want to 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 bring us back to one of the first who did that, and who perhaps also helped to create this legend around Napoleon, and that's. A great philosopher himself, that's Hegel. And and Hegel lived through the times of Napoleon himself. And well, this is the quote, you all know it, but it's it's often quoted uh, when Hegel writes to a friend of his in uh, 1806 and writes about Napoleon. And he says, I saw the emperor, this soul of the world, go out from the city to survey his reign. It is a truly wonderful sensation. To see such an individual who, concentrating on one point while seated on a horse, stretches over the world and dominates it. And it's not just one sentence in a letter. Hegel is the one who crafted the idea of the historical hero. And for Hegel, the historical hero, like Alexander and Caesar, historical heroes, in the words of Hegel, are practical-minded men. They are not men who think they are not men who develop grand strategies. They are men, in, in the words of Hegel, uh, in uh, uh, with deeds that are individually effective. The individual is what the deed is. So for Hegel, the man of action is the hero of the day. Yeah? The phenomenology. What is it with my pronunciation today? Phenomenology of the mind. He writes about the historical hero as the man of action. And he says... You, you you don't have to psycholo- psychologize those heroes. Uh, psychology doesn't help you much. It's about the deeds. And we have to study the deeds and the effect of the deeds. And that is what makes man great. Well, I really, really, really resent this, this, this kind of perspective on history, on the deeds and on the man of action and on the consequences. Because uh, there's there's no framework for assessing it anymore if if someone creates havoc if someone destroys things it's an equally grand deed then he wages a battle then then if he does something that's perhaps far more nuanced and subtle and creates a democracy or creates a constitution so why is such a deed needs to be so destructive why needs it to be a battle i mean 
we can discuss and we will discuss the Napoleonic Code later on. Napoleon has not become famous for his legal paragraph making. He's become famous for his battles. And a philosopher like Hegel uh, helped Napoleon to this myth. We know that Napoleon himself uh, did that too. But I think this is really a burden on the legacy on how we look at history. That Hegel is one of the first historians, philosophers, but also historians who started doing this. And, and we still bear, bear the burden of this. And it's also fair to say that Napoleon is unusual in history, in that he's the loser who gets to write his own history. He bucks that trend that we could debate at length of the initial histories being written by the winners, which then dominate the early perceptions. Napoleon loses over the course of the entirety of his career, and yet nonetheless gets the opportunity to state his case and to start to craft his own legacy, which leaves its long shadow. Yeah, and, and for Hegel, sorry, for one brief sentence to Hegel again, um, since Hegel as a philosopher has become so dominant in, in the way we think about the, the development of history, the narrative of history, uh, Hegel wrote his stuff about Napoleon around 86, and Napoleon was the hate of his victory. He didn't take into account any of the defeats later on that Napoleon suffered, because for him, defeat didn't matter much. I mean, it was still the deed of waging those battles that counted, so it didn't even matter that he lost. And that's also something that, that brings us back to the present. Uh, if people destroy things, they're, they're uh, worshipped. We, we, we are impressed by the way they stage revolts, they ruin elections. And that is something now that's, that is allegedly good because it has an effect. Something's happened. It's the drama that counts, not the normativity or the morality. I think uh, and I, I agree with both of you. Uh, for me, uh, one of the most interesting uh, kind of epistolary uh, work that came out of this period is uh, is the memoirs of uh, André François Mio de Melito, a really interesting uh, guy who, you know, was in the circle of Napoleons and knew uh, his brothers, knew Napoleon, and and in eighteen oh one. Melito was tasked with going to down to Corsica, to Ayacho, and um, uh, actually sharing the news, proclaiming effectively um, the Senate decree that conferred on Napoleon the status of consul for life. So this kind of transition from republic to this weird political construct where you are republic but led by a person who is <laughs> going to be there for life. And I think he writes in his memoirs that when he announced that, that there was uh, more surprise than enthusiasm for any of that in, in Ayacho, because as he writes, people didn't know how to reconcile this news with their memories of who Bonaparte was, because they knew him, right? They knew his family. Uh, they knew where he came from. They knew all the words and right wrinkles uh, of, of the family story. And for them, to know the Bonaparte, the one that they kicked out in 93, and now in 1801, he's suddenly this all-powerful right, uh, ruler of France, that they found it quite unique or quite quite bewildering. And, and that prompted them to reconsider who he was or what was the relationship with them, right? Kind of reassessing. And I think that's a process that is was underway during his entire reign, so during the empire, you see that reassessment. Um, one of my friends just recently was, you know, sent me a, 
lovely quote from uh, French peasants um, in 1814 that said, uh, you know, Christ uh, died, you know, kind of echoing what you were saying, uh, Zach, in connection to Jesus Christ. And that the quote from the peasant, from one of the peasants was that Christ died for us, but Napoleon expects us to die for him, right? This parallel kind of juxtaposition. And of course, it didn't, it didn't help that, you know, it certainly doesn't help us, or at least the people nowadays, you know, kind of trying to get into this field, trying to understand who Napoleon was, that we have a, 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 a remarkable diversity of opinion expressed on him. From the hero, from him being the hero of Napoleonic legend in twenty volumes of the Adolf Thiers, the more uh, erudite, you know, kind of erudite volumes of Henri Ousset, uh, Masson, Vandal, more recently Michael Brewers or um, uh, Andrew Roberts, or on the other hand, the calculating egotist of Madame de Stal or Machiavellian schemer of Pierre Lanfray's vision or the transplanted Italian condottieri of Ippolitan and more recently Paul Schroeder, right? So you have this kind of diversity of opinion that uh, on one hand highlights the complexity of this historical phenomenon, but in order to appreciate it, you have to engage with all these opinions, all these multiplicity of sources, which for a general audience is not, is, is not as enticing, is not as interesting. So if you pick one particular book, that's the book that essentially shapes your taste. Your, your, the flavor of the period is given to you. So you read, let's say, Robert's book, and that's the only book you read, then you'll have a more positive view of Napoleon than if you read Schroeder's book, who is far more critical of Napoleon. Uh, and I think for us as a professional historians, I don't think that is as acute of a problem because that we do this for a living. But for public, for public perception, that is a fundamental issue. And that's where I think there is a role for public historian like you like, or what we're doing right now, where we're bringing these issues to the front and, and pointing, in the, you know, pointing people at least to ask or pose questions that will let them outside that bubble, whether it's a critical or positive bubble about Napoleon. Yeah, there is a whole fascinating debate to be had there about how we bring that multiplicity of views, not only together, but also how we put that before the public in, in such a way that people can form their own conclusions. Um, not It's not the case that, you know, each of us should should bang the drum and try and convert everybody to our way of thinking, but rather to encourage people to move away from the polarised one-dimensional perspectives at each end of the spectrum and, and to... A, a more rounded understanding of the human behind the history. Um, and for the folks who are in the US and planning to go to Alex's excellent conference, the Consortium of the Revolutionary Era conference in um, February, I'm very much looking forward to be, being there with Luke Reynolds and Severin Angers. And we're going to be discussing some elements of that in terms of how perception has shifted over time and the reasons for that and look at things like memorialization as well. So there was a an ad um, for, for <laughs> folks to enjoy there. Um, Thank you. And, and Beatrice, I look forward to seeing you there too. Didn't know that you were going, Zach. This is such yes. great news. I, I will be sitting in the audience. But, uh, listen to your, because what you're describing here is applied history. And I think that that's a very important art and it shouldn't be done lightly. But it's very easy to draw strange and simplistic and primitive uh, arcs from the past to the present 
I'll make two simple comparisons between 1933, for example, or fashion, what have you. But with Napoleon, I think there's there's lots to be gained on on tracing back how the memory and the legacy of Napoleon changed. Um, a completely different thought. I was just just thinking when you mentioned um, uh, Alex, the people were complaining that Napoleon asked others to die for him. Here you have a very interesting applied history comparison. It's exactly what Vladimir Putin did. Vladimir Putin, in March last year at a rally in Moscow, he preached to his citizens and he quoted the Bible. And he said, uh, there's no greater love for man than to die for his friends. But in the Bible, John 15 or 13, it's Jesus who said, who sort of proclaims that he is will be the one who will be dying for his friends. And then Putin, like Napoleon, uses this to raise others and rally others to die for his course. And this kind of this being an, an, an inverted redemptor, being an inverted preacher, to ask others to give up their lives, that that's, is something that still holds sway today. If, if you look at, at warmongers like, like Putin, for example, nowadays. So I think there's really much to be said to, to do applied history carefully and use it for present day as well. Sorry for this this bypass. But oh, no, no, that, you're absolutely Putin. right. In fact, that's one of the things I uh, point uh, oftentimes point out in, in, our, in my debate with, with friends who are more pro-Napoleon. Um, Speaking of, of Putin's speech, when I actually listened to uh, to it and, and, of course, listened to his commentary, and it reminded me of Wilfred Owens, of course, famous poem, Dulce Decorum Est, in which the last few lines, of course, say that to, to that my friend, you wouldn't tell with such high zest, right? If you've gone to actual war and seen it, you've not, uh, you would not have tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie. Dulce decorum as pro patria mori. And yet that's the that's lie that we're, <laughs> we're giving you time and again. Um, so absolutely. Uh, and I think it, it, the, the idea, what I find interesting is that the people who, at least in, in, in the circle that I, I, I know, who like Napoleon are the very people who despise Putin, uh, even though there's a lot to be said about um, about the way these two men operated uh, in, 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 in the field of politics, in, in the field of control, um, and, and things that will, will, will be interesting in terms of comparison rather than contrast. Well, let's stay with notions of, of autocracy for the, the next part of this then, because one of the um, points that is made, and it's not an incorrect or, or it, it is, there is a legitimacy to this point, you know, you look at the other autocratic leaders of Europe, you look at what Napoleon does, and a case can be made um, that actually they're all as bad as each other. Now, that is sometimes used in the defense of Napoleon to turn around to people and say, well, you shouldn't be criticizing Napoleon because that's just how it was back then. But the difference, for me at least, is that when we look at the other nations of Europe during this time, we don't really hold those governments up as shining examples of what humanity can do and be and achieve. Actually, we are applying, I would argue, a double standard when it comes to Napoleon, because we're giving him a pass for the fact that actually other people were just as bad as he was. Beatrice, let me bring you on this. Both of you are, are nodding 
um, in agreement with me, which might mean it's sort of more a um, a series of points in in agreement with what I've said rather than a sort of robust exchange of conflicting views. But um, one thing that strikes me is that you are the security expert um, amongst historians of the world. And one of the points that you've made to me in the past is that Napoleon writes a rule book that other nations in Europe subsequently pick up when it comes to control of the populace that actually sets him apart in that respect. So let me get your thoughts on all of this. Oh, this is, this is a complex argument to make. I, by the way, I like how you flipped the argument that it's a hold up against Napoleon and Napoleon shines up better than those old uh, autocrats. But in fact, he is he is an even more effective autocrat than the ancient regime autocrats were because they did not invest so much in their war machineries. They did not invest so much in their security machineries. But Napoleon, he was an autocrat and a populist. And that was the novel aspect of it. The other autocrats, they were not populists. They were not really interested in learning how the, pub the public thought. They'd rather suppress what the public thought and they didn't want to know it. And I mean, of course, there were secret agents and there were a, a, a type of secret police already in the Asian regime, also under uh, Louis XIV and also uh, under the Dutch Stadtholder, for example. Uh, although the Netherlands was a republic, it was also an autocrat republic, it was a repressive republic. There were also secret agents roaming around in Prussia, of course. So it's not that it's completely new, but what Napoleon did, he tied the efficiency of a centralized state apparatus with the hierarchical imperial notion of autocracy, the complete disrespect for civil rights. I mean, we can talk about that uh, in a minute, but he did not have that much respect for civil rights, participation, um, a contradiction, opposition. He, he didn't have that at all. I mean, he was the one who abolished and rolled back many of the uh, gains of the French Revolution. And then he set on to create this, which you were speaking about. And indeed, we had a discussion about this before, but it's important to stress that uh, the haute police that Fouché developed for Napoleon is something that the autocrats that came back in power in 1815 were very happy to take over and that really inaugurated the modern centralized uh, security state that did not just protect the king and his courtiers, but that they that took into account l'esprit public. Well, this, this very important notion that came up in the times of the French Revolution is something that Napoleon took as a threat. And he weaponized it, he used it himself for his myth-making, for his mobilizing, for his uh, bulletins from the Grand Armée. You wrote about it yourself, Zach. But he also knew about the danger if the esprit public would... Um, uh, took sides against you. So what he did, he asked Fouché to manipulate, to subvert l'esprit public, to gain insight of what people were thinking, to go into the cafes, to open up letters and to uh, find saboteurs. And even, and we had this before, I really like this part, um, to identify the patterns of post-nouvelle fake news. Because he was the one who wielded his power with the help of fake news and propaganda. So he knew that it could also refer back and, and hit you on the head. So that is what he brought in. And that is what Prussia, what Metternich, what uh, the Netherlands, uh, other smaller countries who were occupied by the, 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 the prince the prince and the fiefdoms. They took that over when Napoleon left. So everything remained in place in many parts of Europe that was put there to not liberate or emancipate the populace, but suppress it. 
And folks will be, some folks might be listening to this kind of going, well, but look, there's, there are, you know, points to be made here about how, you know, this is, this is intelligence, right? And Napoleon needs to do these things. Uh, I'm, I'm trying very hard to play devil's advocate on behalf of Napoleon here, which is not something that necessarily sits entirely now, it's, well it's, with it's, me. it's a different concept. You had military intelligence, reconnaissance, Wellington had this intelligence agents as well. Then you had diplomatic intelligence and so the opening up of letters, the dark chambers, uh, the black chambers, as they were called. But this was a new form of intelligence. It was security related intelligence, which was not just gaining information, but also manipulating the populace. So it was counterintelligence, perhaps it was counter uh, um, subversion, but it was subversive in itself. It's the out police part that was really new. Out police, something different from reconnaissance of uh, intelligence. Alex, let me bring you in. Your work has particularly been praised for the way in which it sets the Napoleonic Wars within its global context. Are you ever persuaded by this argument that, um, you know, actually Napoleon's, when you put him within the context of the time, he's he might be a bit worse in some regards, as Beatrice is alluding to here, but he is consistent and he is a product of his age. Does that carry much much kudos with you? I think that's where Beatrice and I think will approach uh, approach the subject slightly from different angles. Um, um, the the un, you know the ancien regime autocrats, if we can use this expression, um, did spend as much as Napoleon. I mean, in, in, in Russia, the military uh, budget alone accounted for 47% of the entire spending. Uh, they did spend on security. They were just not as efficient and they were not as successful. And the reason for this is, of course, that Napoleon, by contrast, is the beneficiary of French Revolution. Right? He comes to power in the wake of transformative event that opened pathways that would have been absolutely uh, impossible for him or for any uh, 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 anyone in his place to pursue. Uh, and that, and we'll talk about the Code Napoleon, for example, right? Uh, um, I encourage your listeners to read uh, uh, my, my good colleagues and, and friend, Ray Blaufart's uh, wonderful book called The Great Demarcation, mm-hmm. in which he he talks about the invention of of modern sense of property and i think what we what for me the the biggest takeaway from uh from this book was the degree to which napoleon right especially in the later stages of, of the book you'll you, you'll see it to uh, the degree to which napoleon plays a secondary role in all of this right even in the drafting of code which in popular imagination carries his name Napoleon has a secondary role. There are other people more capable in terms of legal reform, legal concepts, more experienced than him, who are engaged in it. People like Cambaceres, people like Portales, and others um, who contribute to creating a system. So the point I'm making is that um, we're perfectly fine, I think, beating up Napoleon, but as long as we're cognizant of the fact that he is not necessarily the only person within France who wants these things happen. Um, the system that he establishes, the system that benefited a lot of people around him, 
And even if Napoleon had died in the field of Marengo in summer of 1800, who knows how things would have turned out. But I think many of the reforms, many of the changes, many of the directions that France adopted would have happened anyways. And the reason I'm saying this is because revolution was dead in many respects, and using kind of dead quotation marks, um, in the last years of directory. Directory killed the Republic, not Napoleon. Directory killed a lot of reforms that the revolution brought, not Napoleon. Napoleon was the summary of, of that direction, of that those changes that initiated long before he had the power. And that's, you know, we'll, we'll get into the discussion of the code or the reforms. And my argument is that many of those reforms predate Napoleon, clearly, and that Napoleon simply brought them to an end. He got things done but not, he not necessarily invented them. Napoleon getting things done, we're, we're starting to sort of circle back to strongman images with all of this. And Putin does like to characterize, excuse me, characterize himself as that sort of great facilitator. Um, there are some very curious um, propaganda, quite frankly, skits of him um, sort of turning up at random locations where, you know, building regulations have been ignored or whatever and sort of giving what for to individuals and sort of making out that he's going to sort of he's the guy who comes in and sorts things out for you and then goes away again in a sort of puff of smoke and um i don't know a, a, an ode to kgb um beatrice let me bring you back in though in response to what alex said there yeah i i, I don't think it's really a different argument that the, than the one that i am making uh, it's perhaps framing it differently um, the thing is, if you look at Napoleon, he was as much an autocrat or even worse. He was a populist and an autocrat. That was my argument. And what Alex is explaining, that that was, that was not just a coincidence that he came into power and he didn't just twist everything only once he was in power. He was himself as well the outcome of the process. That's true. But as the outcome of the process, he was not just... Um, object of the waves of the tides of history he shaped them very much to his own liking so things only started to change and to happen once napoleon was um uh, uh, in the saddle and if we take a look again at the, the the french code the code napoleon there's an interesting discussion going on there over the the, the the time of the decades already some people argue that napoleon wasn't very important in framing the code i think um, I think Alex said as much himself that Napoleon did not invent everything on his own. Of course, he couldn't. He, he was he was a son of a lawyer, but he was not a legal specialist himself. He was a military man. But what he did, if you look, for example, at the sessions of the Council of State that helped to conceive that code, that Napoleon took part, just looked it up, in 97 cases out of 102, not just as a participant, but as chairman. And for him, the codification was truly, really essential and important. And not just because, and this is the point, people, people mentioned this code as an argument for Napoleon's sake, that he was such a great reformer, that he was so beneficial to France, and etc. But he didn't do that to, 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 to bring back civil equality, family life, to, 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 to emancipate the people. He did that to streamline the government 
um, the private the property thing is also a way and a means and the, 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 the implementation of names and the register and the land register in the Netherlands, which also happened only in the Napoleonic times, was a means to be able to identify where he could get taxes, where he could lay his hands on uh, private funds of people. Because in those times, you didn't know about how rich the country really was. Well, people complained that France was bankrupt, that the Netherlands were bankrupt, but the people were not bankrupt. Napoleon knew that. He's complaining all the time to Louis Napoleon that you're, you're, you're just saying that we cannot get any money or any men out of the Netherlands, but I know they're there. I know the wealth, the riches of these regions. And he, he, he was right. So his reforms were also intended. The law, the property reforms, the law reforms, um, the name reforms, they were all intended to create a better grip, a larger control on the population to squeeze them and get more money and men and things out of them for his war machinery. And also he did not bring back the code or he did not improve the code to create a more modern state, he created the code to get a unified state that would help him to wage his wars and to wage better control and a grip on this populace. And I think that's something that you have to focus in, factor in, if you discuss the Napoleonic. For him, it was an, a means to an end. The code in itself was not his end. So Beatrice making the case very emphatically there for sort of the Machiavellian interpretation of Napoleon's actions. I just want to say um, as a side point, it's fascinating to watch the two of you in full flow. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to stick this on the YouTube channel. We we may well do yet. Um, but the way that you're both making notes and you're double checking things as you're going, it's it's a model for how people who really know what they're talking about can actually engage in a really robust uh, conversation about these things we've been knocking on the door of the code so hey let's surrender ourselves to well, or not surrender ourselves to it depending on, on your interpretation um it's it's put forward as the evidence of napoleon as the great reformer of the age alex has already sort of burst that balloon in in some respects for us um i think it's very much a double-edged sword from my perspective when it comes forward because there is a keen sense that the code is needed, that unification of law is, is sorely required in France. Um, it's a process that has been ongoing throughout the revolution, that try and, that, that push to try and achieve something more uniform and, and more stable. Uh, and this is perhaps an interesting tangent, you know, to what extent does Napoleon facilitate a degree of stability within France, either through the code or, or through other aspects of his rule? But the the code ultimately leaves half the population of France in a worse state after it is enshrined into law than they were prior to it. And that, for me, becomes a big problem for Napoleon's legacy, because if literally half of your population is doing less well now because of decisions that you've made, that that is a, a significant thorn in the side of the the argument for greatness and and um this is why we called it the good the bad and the ugly because within the code there is, there is good and bad and ugly to consider um alex let me get your thoughts you've been scribbling notes as bitch has been talking so i'm just going to surrender the mic to you at this stage yeah um i, I think again i think it's a more i agree with you uh beatrice i think it's a maybe a, a uh, framework or or uh, conceptual um, difference that we have, because my argument is that Napoleon 
is simply a continuation of a process that has started way, way back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The Napoleonic Code, to connect it to the question that Zach uh, um, uh, brought, is drafted by lawyers. Yes, Napoleon is present there, but if we dig deep, right, you will see that Napoleon's involvement in the drafting of the code is not as, yes, he can be present in the room, he can contribute um, to the discussions, but ultimately the code reflects not Napoleon's perceptions, not Napoleon's aspirations, but it, it reflects the perceptions and aspirations of a whole generation of lawyers, French lawyers, who grew up in a, specific, in a very particular legal uh, idea in mind, an idea that was cultivated by the likes of uh, Charles de Moulin, Jean Baudin, uh, Charles Loiseau. These are late 16th, early 17th century legal minds, all of whom, all of whom were writing about importance of statism, state control, these are the people who are more royalists than the king himself. Here, these are the men who wanted to give absolute power to the king. Right? And even in the 18th century, before the revolution, there are a number of lawyers who want, who want that to happen. The, the events of the August 4, right, uh, of 1789 is the first step towards the process of separating property and power, but that power that is separated from property is given to the state. And there's a lot of lawyers there who do want to have state that is powerful. Now, they are unable to achieve that during revolution for a variety of reasons that we don't need to get into the discussing, but they are able to do that with Napoleon. So people like Treyarch, like Portalis, like Rete, they all were molded by this idea and they were willing to use Napoleon essentially as a vehicle to achieve it. So that's how I look at it. So if Napoleon died in Marengo and we had Moreau in power and Moreau had been as cap capable as Napoleon in restoring the order, I'd have no doubt whatsoever that code would have been code Moreau and would have had same kernels in terms of relationship of property and power, same principles on the extent of the state's authority. Um, and I have no doubt, again, to, to point out, to, to kind of go back to Zach's point, that whether Napoleon would have been in power or not, the code 
if it was drafted, would have been still based on reinforcing patriarchal authority. It would, or, pa or to be precise, paternal authority. It would have been still about disempowering women because we see that happening already during the directorate after the radicalism is over. It's a, a powerful point that has left both of us sort of sitting back and, and sort of musing to ourselves. Um, one way or another, this this step back for women is coming anyway. So is Napoleon a victim of being, inverted commas, at the wrong place at the wrong time? Or does he still have to own it because he is so proud of it and elevates it as one of his great legacies? Beatrice? Yes, I, I really am fascinated by this debate. And it is a debate that's not just about Napoleon, but about, again, the role of great men in history. How do you measure that? And we have had that role for um, Hitler to bring in another dictator. We have had that role for other big leaders. And in the debate on Hitler uh, in Germany, there has there have emerged two schools that deal with the position and the influence of Hitler or in the way that we're discussing it, not about the genocide and Shoah part, but uh, in the way a great leader or a big leader, a monstrous uh, great leader, has an effect on what's happening around him. In what sense such a leader is a disruption or a continuity? And Ian Kirsch wrote his brilliant double biography of Hitler, introduces an element that I would find interesting to look more closely into if it concerns Napoleon. And it's the element in German, we, it's called dem Führer and Gegenarbeiten. So the thing is, with Hitler and also with Stalin, they did not make all the decisions themselves. Sometimes they weren't even in the room, they sat back, which makes historians like us say, well, it's not written, it's not in the records, they were not there, they didn't impact it. But if you look, zoom out a little bit more and you look, and it's very hard to prove this debate. That's why it's still ongoing also with Napoleon. You cannot pinpoint and say, this is all Napoleon's doing. Look, here is his signature. He drafted and, and ordered all of this. No, he didn't. But in this instance of the Napoleonic Code, as I said, he wasn't just in the room. He was chairing the whole thing. And we know that Napoleon was a very much controlling person. So if he sat back and if he let the lawyers do their job, he could have intervened, but he didn't because they were working in his vein, dem Führer and Gegenarbeiten, working towards the leader. So if the things happened in a way similar to the patterns of the lawyers from the 16th, 17th and the, throughout the 18th century, it was because Napoleon allowed them to do. And yes, he was also a product of that friend, back to order, back to autocracy after the revolution himself, but he also was a catalysator. He made it happen. And then, so, sorry, one more point. If you look at the role of, of how women were treated in the, in the code, it is easy to argue and say, yeah, well, the French Revolution was an aberration in history and women's rights were going down the drain. Anyway, we don't know that. What we do know is that for Napoleon, the lawyers that he presided over, uh, for them, adultery was a sensitive issue. Um, and it was an anomaly in French law. And in the Napoleonic Code, and that's a novel element, I looked into this and I'm basing myself now on an article for Theresa McBride. Let me please uh, uh, quote her briefly. 
And she writes that the Napoleonic Code had reinvented or invented the crime of adultery, uh, which wasn't there in the revolutionary penal legislation, which was part of the clerical law before that. And now it was in civil law and in penal law, Article 230, it distinguished between the adultery of the wife, which was an immediate ground for a divorce, and adultery of the husband, uh, which could be forgiven. And there were lengthy discussions about this, and Napoleon presided over these discussions and, and inevitably took the side of the man. So, yes, he was doing that by the help of lawyers who were doing it for them. And yes, it may have been a trend, but this only, uh, Alex, I think, reinforces the argument that he was an autocrat, like the previous kings and monarchs were. He was also a populist because he knew that his men, the ordinary man in society, they would like him even more about this. The soldiers were afraid that the women were, would run amok once they were off for the Grand Armée. So it actually helped. And this is my point from earlier on. It was a means to an end. It was not that Napoleon did that only because he hated women. He felt that it helped him, not in the sense that it would have helped the kings and the, uh, the emperors of yore to uphold their ancient regime, imperial state. It helped Napoleon to make his war machinery to make his unified, centralized nation-state that was run on men, sacrificing himself in the war, that would make it run more smoother. So I do think there's a continuity, but I also see a novel element. If you, if you consider the code an instrument of the government, then for the ancient regime kings, it was an instrument to uphold their courtly order. For Napoleon, it was an instrument to run a war. And I think there is an, an, an some kind of a break in history. It's 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 slightly, well, not slightly. It is a different intention, a different direction in history in the way the code is being used. There's a really interesting debate tied up in all of that that you've alluded to there, Beatrice, and and stated actually directly. You know, was the French Revolution an aberration for women's rights? Was it a flash in the pan, or was it actually an opportunity that then subsequently? was missed by the rolling back of of the years um and it's interesting that again you come back to this machiavellian kind of interpretation of, of napoleon's actions everything has a, a purpose now as an effective leader actually you would expect everything to have a purpose rather than to be done on a whim alex are you persuaded by this <laughs> no no oh well <clears throat> No, I don't think it's a fair question because uh, it's not about persuasion. I share uh, some of uh, what what Beatrice have said, and let me actually go back to the point that you made, Zach. Napoleon absolutely should should own it all. Right? This is not about excusing Napoleon. I think what we're trying to do is to contextualize him. Right? Is to um, maybe look at particular angles that show the complexity of the issue rather than to say that, oh, Napoleon is completely innocent of it or entirely guilty of it. Um, on the issue of the um, of code and, and the paternal authority uh, and, and women's right, the point I'm, I'm, trying, I'm making is that um, ultimately, let's say Napoleon shared feminist views. Let's say he was in favor of women's rights. Would he have been able to include them in the law, in the code? My argument is that he would not. 
because he's surrounded by a wider right, group of people, the advisors, the men, who don't want that. These are the people who shared, for example, the writings, the spirit of Rousseau. And if anything, we know how misogynistic Rousseau was with regards to women. He believed that women were vastly inferior to men. So if we talk about the generation of men raised on this spirit, why are we surprised that they, when given an opportunity, create um, a law that is misogynistic? That I look at the 1793-94 events when women are given indeed a recognition of their uh, new status, new rights, and all this as an aberration, as a, a, a as a reflection of a, a unique set of circumstances. Because we know that the, for the first two years of revolution, that was not intent. Right? That both Wollstonecraft and Olam de Gouge were quite vocal about women's rights and how far did they get in, in achieving that? So 93-94 for me is unusual. And then to when we get to the Code Napoleon, I think it's a more of a return to the quote-unquote normality. Beatrice, do you want to come back on any of that? Yeah. You look poised. Well, I, I think it is an interesting thought experiment. So what if Napoleon would have supported uh, women's rights? He wouldn't have gone through. I mean, I do like iffy history, but we know how Napoleon thought about, about women. There are plenty quotes uh, uh, from Napoleon, how he thinks about women and that the weakness of women's brains, the flightiness of their ideas is something that he writes about. He says, a woman belongs to her husband like an apple belongs to the owner of the tree. So there's no way that I can sort of really follow through with the thought experience. Sorry, Alexander. So, and also in, in those, those reports of the sessions in which Napoleon participated, yeah, he wasn't alone. Cambacer, Portales and all the others, they, they, of course, they were equally misogynistic. But my point is that from Napoleon's writings, we may conclude that is something that fits very much into his um, ambition to turn the state into an apparatus that would serve his general interests, the interests of war. And for him, women did not have a place there at all. They were incapable, they were like minors, they were like criminals. So for him, the legal inequality was necessary. He couldn't use any women standing up to him. And we know how he discussed the style. So for me, it's not just that he was just part of the gang and everyone thought like that. No, well, we, it's it's hard to, to prove the point conclusively, but from his writings, from the way what we know uh, about reports on, on the Code Napoleon, from the way Napoleon used the Code to his military ends, I think we still can say that there is a bridge here in history, which makes it different from the old ancient regime patriarchal system. This is a, a militarized system, and we know how women are treated under a militarized autocratic system. And Napoleon was no, no different than that. But so again, we are, we, if I can yeah, chime go on in, on, Alex. Yeah, yeah. But again, uh, by focusing too much on Napoleon, we create maybe that singularity here that Zach was alluding to. How did convention treat women? Well, we know. Convention repressed the leaders. Some of them were executed. It Convention closed the women's clubs. It postpones plans to develop education for girls. It reversed legislative advances that had been done 
in the previous years. So I think, again... Uh, no, I, I agree. I, I agree. I mean, I'm not saying that Napoleon was so different in treating women badly than, than the revolutionaries. We know that women hardly ever profit from a revolution. So this is just stressing the fact that the revolution was not that uh, pro-women's rights either. But but it still doesn't take away from the point that for Napoleon it served a purpose. That, that's that's my point. The code was not a reform in a, a, as an end state. Napoleon was not an, an enlightened reformer. He was a warmonger who needed everyone to submit to his war machine. Beatrice has thrown down a gauntlet. Yeah, there I, about I don't think I agree with it. Yeah, I don't think I will agree on the warmongering part. We'll uh, get I look to at that Napoleon in, as a status. As a statist, yes. And as such, he reflects a long tradition of statist philosophy in, in France. But I'm not sure about warmongering, especially because the code is conceived, develop, well, developed and approved well before the war breaks out. So it's done actually in peacetime. And Napoleon is not necessarily preparing for the war when the code is, uh, is, is, is approved. In the Netherlands, the code is only introduced by his brother in 1810, uh, in 1806, sorry. And then it's done because the Netherlands need to be aligned to France. And Napoleon needs to know how much people, uh, property, uh, lands are in the Netherlands. So he wants to get a grip on the country to suck it dry. And that's what he says to his brother. In his letters, he, he doesn't say anything about you need to modernize, you need to improve or reform or discard these old Republican laws of the Netherlands, the old Roman law it was. He's not considered, and that's what Louis Napoleon is considered uh, about. So he really wants to modernize the Netherlands. For Napoleon, it's about money, it's about troops, about information, about lands that he wants to get his hands on. So in the letters to his brother Louis Napoleon, you get a clear image on how Napoleon intends to introduce and to use the uh, code Napoleon, which is then the code Louis Napoleon for the Netherlands. So at least from that example, I can very well prove the argument that I was trying to make. Of course, it may in other, in other situations may be different. Um, and uh, the warmongering part, what I mean by that is that, uh, that that's perhaps the other point that we're coming on to now. Um, to what extent was a stable, a consolidated state um, a possibility for Napoleon. Could he have kept the whole thing afloat without war? I mean, you've you've dragged us into that question. I was going to go somewhere slightly different with this, but you two are uh, sort of pinging off one another. So I'm reluctant to, to drag you away from um, the debate as it really starts to sort of start to, to fire up. Um, so we'll we'll talk about Napoleon as the diplomat, as the master or otherwise of international relations, is he his own worst enemy? Is Napoleon somebody who understands compromise sufficiently? Is the fact that he's a general first and an emperor second actually a problem for him in that he is accustomed to be able to dictate terms off the back of military success, which therefore means he has an inclination to extract more which would then arguably feed into the warmonger argument in the sense that if you're not willing to compromise, you breed resentment. And if you breed resentment, then you destabilize the peace that you are dictating in the first place. Beatrice nods emphatically, um, but I know that she and I have discussed that kind of interpretation at length in the past. So Alex, let me bring you in first of all. Um. 
I don't know. This is a big question, right? It's a big. Uh, um, maybe it's a maybe. Uh, I will start by kind of uh, tr uh, retracing uh, the point that that Beatrice made. I don't see all these changes as as a reflection of Napoleon's warmongering. Introduction of you absolutely right. I agree with you the, for the about the purpose of introducing the code. It's it is about control. It's about uh, um, resources. But I connect it to empire. I connect it to empire management rather than warmongering. And I I do believe that Napoleon was indeed his worst enemy because he was unable to see that um, the point where he could just kind of chill, right? Um, I think there is a Mio, is it Mio? Um, I think it's Mio, um, I think it's Mio Milito, or maybe, yeah, I'll, I'll remember exactly um, who who it, he was uh, um, that, that spoke about Napoleon being unable to, um, yeah, I think it's uh, actually uh, Mollet, if I'm not mistaken, who says that, um, Napoleon's common sense amounted to genius, and yet somehow he never quite knew where the possible led off. And I, I love that quote, because in many respects, it's easy for us to, um, to look at Napoleon's kind of as a character, as an intellectual, and, and really marvel at, at his multitasking, at his um, ability to work. And yet we also see that a man of his intellectual powers is bordered on delusional in, in, in the later years of the empire. That hubris indeed, especially after 1807, hubris indeed clouded his judgment and becomes a crucial reason in the downfall of the, of the empire that he built. Um, so I do think that it, at times he is his uh, uh, worst enemy. But um, a, a lot of reforms that he introduced, pursued, um, I think are less about warmongering and more about empire management, empire building. Um, this is where I, for example, in the books that I, I, I point out that in 1803, Napoleon doesn't want war. The last thing he wants is actually war. If you look at his correspondence with Decret, Right, decree tells him the the woeful state of the French Navy. How do you fight a war against Britain with a navy that has literally two dozen, two dozen seaworthy ships? Napoleon knows that. That's why he is absolutely determined to make advantage of the peace without necessarily leading to the war. And that's why he is actually through the summer after the declaration of the war in May of 1803, he's still willing to engage with the British to negotiate. Just the demands on both sides are too intangible. But I think, I don't, I, ultimately, I don't look at Napoleon as a warmonger. I look at him as a politician who is very good at making the best of circumstances until it becomes too late for him. But that, uh, 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 not necessarily any more warmongering than the British, the Russians. And here comes that what, what aboutism that I referred to earlier in the segment. It is a fair point that actually it takes two to tango during this period, without question. 
Um, and you will not hear me suggesting that the British are the avenging angels of the Napoleonic Wars because they are absolutely not. They are every bit as scandalous um, as Napoleon can demonstrate himself to be on occasion. Beatrice, you're sitting there very patiently, wanted to come back in. Yes, please. Um, like with the previous argument, it doesn't make Napoleon less of a warmongering in saying that the others are equal warmongers. See my point? So if you say, like with the misogynist part, it doesn't make Napoleon less misogynistic in saying, yeah, well, the others did it too. Um, so here again, it depends perhaps on the way you define warmongering. Uh, I don't think Napoleon was bloodthirsty or, or something like that. But the thing is, Napoleon, and, and, and you state, Alex, that he wanted to have an empire. But the way he wanted to have his empire expand on the cost of other smaller nations, countries, that was in itself unsustainable. You only could sustain the way Napoleon wanted this empire by means of military rule, by means of incorporation, by means of occupation, by means of plunder, and ultimately by means of the continental blockade. And I think that very much proves the point that he went into this continental blockade to stop the trade with Britain, uh, to suffocate Britain, because he felt that if only Britain would back off, then he could have his continental empire. And you have it again, empire. But that was the end state, perhaps empire. But how can you achieve an empire? How can you keep an empire afloat? It's like the reluctant empire theory of Great Britain. Great Britain didn't want to fight the uh, the poor Afghans and the Indians either, but they had to because they had to sustain their empire. So if you say Napoleon didn't want war, no, the poor the poor guy he had to because they didn't just submit themselves in voluntarily towards him. So he had to oppress them. So I. I really don't quite buy that argument. No, that, that's not the argument I'm making uh, broadly. But what I'm asking is to look at this at the context. So Napoleon doesn't want war in 1803. Absolutely not. He doesn't need it. Because, and here, here's the bigger issue. He has everything he needs in 1803 without war. France is the supreme power in Western Europe because it won two damn wars. And he, Napoleon, can break in a lot of benefits out of the won wars, like, for example, annexing Piedmont willy-nilly, because no, there's not much can be done about it. Now, there are points later on when he is welcoming, but certainly not in 1803, 1804. And that's the period when, again, the code is being drafted. So that's where the connection between the code and the war, I don't yeah. buy. I do buy the connection between code property, power, and state that then translates into... Resources, as resources for his war. As I told you, for the Netherlands, he wanted to have the code in 1806 because he needed resources for his wars in, 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 in the German lands. And you bring in 183, well, obviously, he wasn't going... Uh, he wasn't able to sustain his empire in 1803. He may have been happy, but the Germans were not, and the Dutch were not. Yeah, but he's an empire. He doesn't care about them. No, he didn't. But he <laughs> That's the nature of the empire. Now, this is friend... like me as a Georgian complaining no, about but... Russians taking over Georgia. No, no one but cares. The point, the point is that the Prussians did not cave in and they used the period between 1800 and 1806. And specifically after 1806, they knew that they had to change things. And if only if they just could accept their defeat, sit down and accept Napoleon's rule. But they didn't. Obviously, they didn't. It brought about the liberation wars in Germany. It brought about liberation wars in the Netherlands. 
it brought about British attempts to get all the colonies, and Napoleon knew that. So my point is, from the perspective of Napoleon, of course, obviously he didn't want to have a war, but he wanted to have an empire. And the only way to sustain and keep his empire afloat, and you could argue he just wanted an empire for empire's sake, you could also argue that he needed the empire to keep up the sense of legitimacy that he was the proper emperor. Because without an empire, he wouldn't be emperor anymore. Without any battles won over the Prussians, over the Austrians, over all the others, he couldn't sustain the legitimacy of his rule. So my point is, it was far more unstable inherently from the get-go. Once he started to expand within given imperial spheres of influence, he would inevitably draw resistance. And I think... In essence, it was never possible for him ever to stand up against all the empires combining against him. After 1803-45, it wasn't possible for him to expand the empire, sustain it like it was, because he already triggered the coalitions into existence. And he made some very bad moves. And the British ruled the waves. That's why he came up with the continental blockade. And in many explanations, the continental blockade is being introduced as one big argument for the downfall of Napoleon, because that, again, the continental blockade was an imperial instrument to sustain his imperial rule on the continent, to suffocate Britain. But this so much went against the grain from the Hanseatic cities, against the grain of Russia, against the grain of Sweden, Norway, against the grain of the Netherlands, that they all wanted to circumvent, to subvert, to gain, uh, um, uh, to, to create coalitions to do away with the blockade. They hated it. It caused democracy, democracies to dwindle on the continent. It was so bad for the economy, and it only benefited Napoleon, but not the countries where he ruled. So that is my point, that the way he wanted to sustain his empire was not sustainable inherently. There is a, an interesting point in here about balance of power as well, isn't there? And that's an argument that I'm often very susceptible to, that Napoleon... You could almost make the argument Napoleon's a victim of his own success because he is so successful um, on the battlefield. It, he is inherently destabilizing to that balance of power exactly. in yeah. an age where everybody is looking for, well, if you're going to take that cut, where is my cut? What am I getting in return so that you aren't going to be the dominant power? And Napoleon has so much success that he has that ability to turn around and say, well, you lost the war. You're not going to get that much in return. You know, what, what were you going to do about it? You're going to fight me? No, oh, wait, you just did. It didn't work for you. And that, I think, is an argument that is particularly true towards the latter part of his career. Uh, and there's a very interesting question to be asked, which sadly we do not have the time for, about to what extent is is much of, not necessarily all of, but much of the the problematic elements of Napoleon's life, career and legacy a product of the latter half of his empire, as opposed to the earlier parts of his career, when he is consul, consul for life, uh, and perhaps even that early period of um, the empire, which we discussed at length. Alex, I, I know you were poised, I, and I, I do want to move on to one final point to end with, but just let me uh, give you the chance to respond. Yeah, again, I'm, I'm really enjoying our, our discussion and I think broadly in agreement with Beatrice uh, on on most of these issues, but there are some issues that I don't, you know, we misaligned. 
Um, and and that's that's a great thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, honored. I'm honored that you debate with me, Alex. You're no, the great, the great connoisseur no, of the Napoleonic no, Wars. No. I'm really honored that you disagree with me. The the feeling is mutual. So it's um, uh, absolutely grateful for 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 the points that you've raised. Um, I think on the issue of legitimacy of the empire, I, I I'm of different opinion because in many respects legitimacy has been long settled. Napoleon creates the, the system that uses popular involvement as a facade for right, dictatorial power. And the referendums have given him that legitimacy. The victories of a third, fourth, fifth coalitions given him that legitimacy. There is no need for the empire to wage war beyond 1810, except maybe to mop up the British in Spain and Portugal. I think this is where Napoleon's huge mistake is. Right? This is where hubris really uh, gets in, in, in the way. If in 1811, he had made the decision to use the resources at his disposal to deal with the British threat in the peninsula, we would have been talking about a very different Europe, very different history. But his decision, remarkable decision that he was able to fight Two-front war against two preeminent powers at the same time is bewildering. And it is not done for the sake of legitimization of his power. It just, to me, the answer is that it is done out of hubris. Um, on the issue of continental system, yes, I agree. Um, continental system is an imperial tool. It is an imperial tool. And ultimately, we know that it would be more detrimental than advantageous to the empire itself. But you cannot but wonder how things would have turned out if there was no 1812, no wars of liberation, no collapse of the empire. How would the continental system that was geared towards creating a different economic environment, French dominated, but still different economic environment from the one that preceded it, how would it have played out? Um, the 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 point on um, on eighteen, um, I think you were saying talking about kind of the the role of Russian reforms, right? Yes, that's what happens when the nations lose power, uh, lose wars. They either roll over and die, and we have more than more than enough examples of nations collapsing and disappearing, or they adjust. They learn from the lesson. And I have an absolute great respect for the Prussian, that generation of Prussian reformers who were able to learn, push through reforms and create a viable state that went on to reassert itself, right? Setting aside the consequences of it, <laughs> the long-term consequences of it, uh, short-term, I think we, we can certainly admire what the Prussians have done in 18, uh, from 1807 to 1813. Yes. Can I... Very briefly, only I, I find this argument really fascinating, and and I, I totally see what, what Alex means. And it's since it's difficult if we history, we do not know for sure. But but let me bring in Matt about the legitimacy part, Alex. And and Napoleon knew about these concepts of legitimacy very well. And in his memoirs, Metternich writes that Napoleon 
told him that he could not invoke the principle of legitimacy as the basis of his power because the old ancient regime principle of legitimacy was tied to the divine dynasties. And for Napoleon, the legitimacy that he had was the legitimacy of conquest. And you're right, of course, he cemented his conquest and he was the legitimate ruler of France, perhaps even more so after 1815 when they wanted him back than, 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 than at first. But um, for Napoleon, it, according to Metternich, he didn't have the flexibility to make peace that would have been second nature to a legitimate king. So if Napoleon would make peace, that would be considered um, a negative peace, uh, an, an humiliating peace, or a peace that wasn't grand enough, then he would suffer the risk of not being supported anymore by his man, because that was his main thing. I'm the conqueror, I'm the emperor, I'm the victor. So it was in itself, and Napoleon in itself was insecure because it was unsustainable to expand the empire on the costs of the other empires. There were just too many empires. You're right. I mean, the Prussians on their own, without Russia and Austria, they would have had to roll over. But they were not on their own. And there were the British on the sea as well. So against that opposition, Napoleon should have known that his legitimacy in winning the battles was not a sustainable route to stay in power. I have to say, we have reached a point in this conversation where I am utterly redundant because you two could go backwards and forwards for the next hour. Sadly, we are out of time. A number of us need to leave. But I wonder if I could just get a very quick line from both of you on one final point that's been implicit to a number of the things that we've raised over this discussion, which is the challenges of Napoleon as a product, understandably, of the 19th century for good and bad. Um, the, the challenges, therefore, of making him an idol for the 21st century and the challenges of placing him on a pedestal when he exhibits things of, of his era that we we can look on and quite rightly and understandably be disgusted by. And we can equally look at certain attributes of his character and, and respect those. Um, Jeremy Black has made the argument that, you know, sometimes turning around and making points about misogyny and slavery is, and I'm quoting him here, facile because it's an open goal. He exhibits the 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 the, the values of his period. Um, but at the same time, there is a very powerful argument to be made that whilst we can understand Napoleon exhibiting those values, those should not be ignored and left unchallenged when we are exalting his successes. So could I just get a quick line from both of you on on that rather kind of long-winded and waffly question slash comment alex would you care to go first on this um and, and just to clarify the uh, the question is more about slavery issue or more broadly uh, more broadly probably but but slavery perhaps is a an element uh, and a very obvious thing that we haven't had the opportunity to discuss but is nonetheless uh, an, another problem within um discussions of napoleon's legacy oh. I think that's a, one of the crucial issues to discuss in, in Napoleon's legacy that, uh, if you ask me, is not uh, discussed um, enough. And, um, and as you pointed out, some people are kind of either dismissive or they are dismissive of it. This is a reflection of the just general outlook or the, of the time, or they just pay, they just don't want to engage in, in, in discussing it. Um, it's certainly true, for example, that in... Um, that the French public, for example, uh, is largely uh, is well, at least in the in the um, educational system of it, um, the issues of slavery are pushed way way to the back. 
Uh, it is barely mentioned in the general Lycée, or it used to be barely mentioned in the general Lycée curriculum. And I don't know if you looked at the 2020 report by uh, Fondation pour la mémoire de Esclavage, uh, which was uh, a, 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 a foundation that is, was established under, I think, Hollande. Um, it actually uh, showed uh, to what a degree that aspect of Napoleon, or just broadly, that aspect of French legacy is, is completely obscured. Um, France, um, France is is not particularly keen on on exploring it, um, and certainly not in uh, during the Revolution Napoleonic time. Um, I think it reminds me of Chirac's. Uh, I think President Chirac in two thousand six was the first one to deliver a, a, a speech, presidential speech, in he in in which he explicitly spoke about Haiti, spoke about what the French did in Haiti, uh, and 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 complained that. French are not particularly aware of it. So I think we must bring those issues uh, to the forefront and, and discuss them. They might be awkward, they might be uncomfortable, but that's what history is. It should make us uncomfortable because that's the only way we learn um, lessons. Now, as almost always, not, not quite always, but as almost always, I totally agree here with Alice. Uh, I think he put it so eloquently. In fact, I, I can only agree. There's, there's one, just to, to come back to your question, why is Napoleon still so popular? In fact, that's part of your question, wasn't it? That That is a question that I have myself too, because I, I'm not very much gripped uh, by his popularity myself. So I find it hard to understand, especially because most leaders are considered from the way their realms and their reigns ended. And Napoleon lost. He was defeated, he was banned, and still people think him the great master, the grandmaster, what have you. So I think it's perhaps a bit like the Russians crave back to the Stalinist times. It was the time when, and perhaps they contrasted to the comeback of Louis XVI, who wasn't such a great figure to, to, to make a hero out of. So Napoleon was this self-made man who made France great with his glory. He, he himself said, my life is a novel, which is true. So perhaps it's the the ambivalence, the the the, the novel-like, the, the self-made like nature of Napoleon's rule, we, we can identify with that, well, perhaps not personally, but it's a story that you can perhaps follow better than the story of an hereditary king, which, which you cannot identify with at all. So perhaps it's that, but for me, it's still a puzzle that I cannot properly solve. Sorry. Whichever way you look well, at it, Napoleon's story uh, is one that's going to continue to fascinate. I hate to do this, Alex, but I'm afraid we are going to have to call it quits there. Thank you both so much for an utterly fascinating conversation. Professor Alex Mukabridze, Professor of History at Louisiana State University, Shreveport. Um, Ruth Hoeing Noel, Endowed Chair for the... I got that... Right. But yes, for the James Smith Knoll collection. It's it's a mouthful, that title. Um, impressive, though, it's you, you know, you don't have to mention it, right? <laughs> but I I, I, it, I endeavor to wrap these things up properly, because let's be honest, the, the actual job of hosting is not something that I do properly at the best of times. Um, but folks, most importantly, you do need to go and buy. Uh, the Napoleonic Wars, A Global History, the Amazon best, number one bestseller. It's widely regarded as one of the great uh, texts on the period in our time. Yes, it is. Don't shake your head. It's just a fact. 
Huge thank you also to Professor Beatrice de Graaf from the University of Utrecht, author of Fighting Terror After Napoleon, a splendid, uh, I need to call it a splentac, a splentacular. We'll, we'll go like with it. It's a word. It's it's a unique word for a uniquely thank respected you. Thank book. Um, thank you so much for your time. Happy New Year to you both. And I look forward to seeing you again very soon. Thank you so thank much. You, Hello, folks. I wanted to take the time to send this message in as personal a way as possible. You are the diehards of this podcast, the Imperial Guard and the Old Faithful. Shortly after recording this year's New Year's special for the podcast, my mental health took a rapid and severe downward turn and I suffered a work-related stress nervous breakdown. Truth be told, I've been papering over the cracks of my mental health for a long time, well before I started this show. Having said that, I thought I was in a better place mentally. The speed with which I deteriorated took me completely by surprise, and I'm taking that as a wake-up call. I've burnt, the, I've burnt the candle at both ends and in the middle, frankly, for far too long. Along the way, I've enjoyed some remarkable highs and have been hugely fortunate in the success that I've been able to enjoy and the good luck that I've had in taking up some incredible opportunities and above all, been humbled by the warmth with which you have all greeted me. It has been a phenomenal journey, but at the end of every episode, I always tell you to take care of yourselves and having not properly stopped working in over six years, it's time for me to start heeding my own advice. I don't want any of you to worry, nor am I asking for sympathy. I'm okay for the most part, and in those areas where I'm not okay, I will be. But I do need to take time. And the one thing that I do ask from you is for your understanding and your patience whilst I take that time to recover both physically and mentally. As a result, Alongside stepping away from many other roles and responsibilities, I am suspending production of the Napoleonic Wars pod for the foreseeable future. This is not the end. There are hours of content sitting on my desk awaiting recording or editing. The Battle of the Marshals will happen. There are hours of exclusive content which will be rolled out when I am ready. And there is a long list of episode ideas and some interviews in the notebook that I have waiting to have life breathed into them. They will find their way to air. But in order to do justice to all of those, I need to refind myself. My spark and fire, which has for so long driven me, is gone and I need to rekindle it. So that's precisely what I'm going to do. Going away and resting so that I... And in time, the podcast can come back bigger and brighter than ever. Do not worry. I have suspended the billing cycle for the coming month and will review where I am each month and will continue to suspend the billing as necessary. So as patrons, you will not be charged. I can't end this without thanking every single one of you. You are the ones who have kept me going through so much of this. It's been nearly three years, 360,000 downloads, and 190 episodes. The podcast has followers somewhere in the region of 10,000 globally. 1,500 people tune in on a good day. YouTube videos have gone viral, and we've broken into the top 50 on Apple Podcasts 
on a couple of occasions. The show now sits amazingly in the top 1.5% of all podcasts on any topic produced around the globe. None of that happens without you coming back time and time again and supporting in whatever way you can. From the meetups, your unwavering support, the positive messages, the reviews, in some cases, even being the show, I could never have dreamt that this podcast would be able to build a community as loyal, close-knit and loving as this. I am lucky to be able to have brought you this period week in, week out, and to have been rewarded so wholesomely with your backing. Shout outs to my mentioned and dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Colson, Jim Getz, Stephen Gillen, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meakin, Mark Anscombe, Rob Coughlin, Bruins Girl, Noah Fink, Mark Trowbridge, Mars, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Ulrich Ducado, James Fluick, Roger O'Donnell, Natasha Hobday, Rod Schwager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, David Graylick, Ted Andrews, David Milinsky, Richard Anderson, Arthur Forgey, Sam Moore, Wyatt Pollock, Carol Dixon-Smith, Roland Shark, Jason Mohan, Mark Chestnut, and Tim Day. And the Admirals, John Haynes, Ryan Diamond, JC Kaiser, Bob Burnham, Mike Guest, Liam Telfer, Todd and Laird Campbell, Graham Swidenbank, Rachel Stark, Mark Duckers, David Maxwell, David Priest, Graham Callister, Sean Sullivan, Stephen Ashworth, Dan Hazelwood, Kate Wolcombe, Steve Carter, Clemens, Charles McKay, and Reto, the sci-fi fan. The Napoleonic podcast will return, but until then, truly, take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and from the very bottom of my heart, thank you all so much for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.